The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading for you today from the first chapter of Job. I'm not beginning a series on this book, but continuing with the uh, more open-ended series that we've been looking at, different Old Testament characters interacting with God on very prominent occasions in their life and what they learned about God. I'm going to read all 22 verses of this chapter. It's not that long, and I wish you would get the sense of what is going on. And it is verse 21 that we're really going to concentrate upon. Listen to God's word, Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you Considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but Stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job who said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another 
who said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people. They are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Our subject is a Christian's godly reaction to grief and loss. Measured in losses taken from us by death, our Westminster congregation has carried a stunning load in recent months. I carefully counted it up. And in the 12 months beginning August 1, 2011 to mid-July, the present day, we as a congregation have experienced 25 deaths of church members. That is twice the normal average of a year. And you can know that those losses are not just statistics. Every one of you can think of some names, perhaps even of a beloved wife or husband or child or parent or friend who's among those who are no longer sitting with us worshiping God, but are rather perfected souls in the presence of Christ. If you add to that tally people who have lost jobs, who have had severe financial setbacks, others who maybe you don't know about, but the pastors do, who are having really tough family struggles, there are a lot of losses a lot of hard things to grieve about. And there's much for us to understand about how we come to a sovereign God and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ so that we grieve in faith and in hope as only believers do know how to grieve. You know, Christians of bygone days probably faced a good bit more suffering than you and I do, especially if you go back more than a century. People dealt with an infant mortality rate that meant at the turn of the 20th century, a man born in the United States of America expected a lifespan of 37 and a half years. That always stuns me. Disease was rampant. Children died readily. There was less affluence, little safety net, no health insurance, People suffered, and they actually expected to suffer more than you and I. We've grown rather insulated by what our government does for us, what our greater affluence does for us, what better health care does for us. And, and now, when these hard things come, we say, oh my goodness, why did that happen? I never expected that to happen. Why am I suffering, Lord? I ask you to realize today that suffering can be the making of a person or the undoing of a person spiritually. Obviously, when 
Folks say, where do I go in the Bible? I'm suffering. Where will I learn something? They often turn to Job. And they think, here will be the answer. Here I will get the explanation for why people suffer. And maybe as they read this oldest drama, it is a very old drama because Job was not an Israelite. We don't even know how exactly his timeline intersects with Abraham or others. His, his story here happened very early. And the authorship of this book is early. If it were fitted into Genesis somehow, it probably would be fitted in even before Abraham, but we're not sure about that. Here was a man who was not an Israelite, but he was a believer in the true God, and a man who conducted his whole life before God in a careful way, both in his worship behavior and his ethics and his business dealings and everything else. And Job suffered like few people ever have. And maybe you think, well, all right, I'll read Job and I'll get this understanding. Why do people suffer? Is it a punishment from God? Did I do something wrong? You know Job had three friends come along and lecture him and argue with him and be back and forth. And basically, all the complex messages that they gave, I'm giving you the very short synopsis of Job, was basically, Job, you sinned and God is punishing you. Would you please fess up? And at the end of the day, there wasn't really anything for Job to fess up to. And God really wasn't directly punishing him. The book of Job teaches us about facing an all-sovereign God who oversees even the worst things that happen to us and who teaches us that the purpose of suffering is discovered not in what causes it, but in the outcome from it. And all the profound answers that Job gives in 42 chapters, I believe, are really summarized in one verse. The theme verse of Job ought to be Job 1.21. He makes a declaration there from which he never moves throughout the whole book. Even though he argues and questions and, and is in the dark for a long time, he never moves from this declaration. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, Very quickly, by way of a quick background here, we just take a glancing look at Job 1, 6 to 12 because there's something amazing here. A believer's suffering as seen from the realm of eternity. It's a scene that you could say, well, it's imaginary. There certainly wasn't any human being there witnessing it, and yet God revealed this to a human author and revealed it not so much as a a video of, of actual events as a way of explaining what is behind our suffering. And we're taught here that our suffering results from a cosmic struggle between the good plans of God and the cunning plans of the evil one. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper wrote about this passage and he said this, If the curtain were ever pulled back so the full spiritual world could come before our view, he said, it would expose a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything into its range that the fiercest war ever fought on the earth would, by comparison, look like a mere sport or game. In God's presence is where the real conflict is being waged. That's what this passage is telling you. And behind the things that seem to come out of nowhere and strike us with misfortune is one who in the Hebrew is labeled the Satan 
here. The Satan. Mysterious figure, we get different things learning about him throughout the Bible. We learn more about him by the New Testament than we know in the Old. But here somehow he is actually present among angels of God who are coming to discuss their work. And he's presented, one author says, as a restless, shiftless, roving hoodlum called to account for his juvenile delinquencies. I like that description. What are you doing, Satan? What have you been up to? And he tells of going up and down throughout the earth. And the Lord says, well, was you, when you were doing that, did you observe a model man who worships and is faithful to what he believes? Job, my servant. Oh, sure, I saw him. He's like that because you only do good to him. Strike him, hurt him, and he'll curse you. Now, this isn't a contest that Satan wins over God. But what we see here is God, the sovereign, who is in control of even the personification of evil. You might say it seems like God and Satan are rivals and Satan has equal power. Not at all. This is one of many passages that shows us he's on God's leash. And he can only do what God permits him to do. Now you say, well, God permits him to do some pretty awful things. But what God permits is that which he knows will never destroy the eternal destiny of his own people. Even if they lose their lives, Satan cannot take those people away from the Lord. The permissive will of God does allow amazing things, terrible things sometimes. But those things are never designed by God for our harm. James chapter 1 verse 13 makes a valuable distinction between Satan tempting someone and God permitting that same thing with the purpose of testing the faith that is there, proving and causing to grow that person. So God is greater than every power of evil, and we get this glimpse of what is going on in eternity that is worked out in the suffering that happens on earth. But the clear fact is, God is sovereign. The evil one is not. Now secondly, I have to push past that and look with you at what I'll call life's hurricane hitting full force upon one single man. Among many books I have on Job, one of them is a paperback with a very colorful cover, and it shows a landscape with a stormy sky, and in the center of the cover is a black-as-ink tornado, the funnel cloud of a tornado coming across the land. And that, without words, is to tell you what you're going to see in Job. A tornado or a hurricane landing on one single man. Now you saw there in verse 3 the inventory of Job's family, his children, ten of them, and his herds, which were vast and unimaginable practically. Even for today, he would be a very wealthy man with those kinds of goods uh, to enrich him. And we're told that all of these animals and all ten of his children died, perished, taken from him in a single day. One of the grabbing cinematic pieces of of movie art, I believe, is in the early part of the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you've ever seen that, you know the part of the message is a Midwest farm family getting the message based on facts that 
three of their four sons in the service have all been killed within just days of each other. And it's, it's very dramatic the way the, the director decided to film this. The, here's the housewife at her sink doing dishes, and you can see out through the window, she's looking out, a car is coming down a long, winding farm lane. And she doesn't pay attention, but then at first she looks, and then she looks again. And she goes to the door and opens the door, and you see the car coming, and it's a military car. And she seems to waver, and then out of the car steps an officer in uniform, and then steps her minister in a clerical collar. And the woman goes down on the porch. You know what the news is going to be that she's going to receive. Think of that, three sons in one message. Here is Job, seven sons and three daughters. And everything you own in your business interests, gone. You just can't imagine that being faced at one time, can you? It's, it's just the worst description a person could ever think of being in. And then Job responds. And we see in verse 20 what he does. He mourns and grieves according to the customs of his day. And those customs are such that dictated torn clothes, dirt tossed on your head, shave your hair, probably shave your beard, and you formally mourn. And others mourn with you respectfully. Weeping real tears. There was a day in the history of Christianity, maybe influenced a lot by the famous British stiff upper lip, when I guess we thought Christians didn't do this kind of thing. They didn't cry real tears. They didn't moan real moans. They just sort of stoically pushed through and said, okay, God's in charge. I can't get emotional. I can't break down. Job broke down. Job wailed. Job cried. In fact, if you would look ahead at chapter 2, verse 13, you find his three friends coming, and it says they joined him for seven days, sitting on the ground with him, not speaking to him that whole time, as they sat there in numb disbelief at the scope of this suffering. If you're a grieving person, I would recommend to you the little book of C.S. Lewis called A Grief Observed. It's a tough book. You might start reading it and say, why did the pastor recommend this book to me? Because C.S. Lewis starts out in that book venting with God. Venting anger. He doesn't stop being a Christian. He doesn't curse God. But he says, where are you and what are you doing, God? And that was written upon the loss of his wife, Joy Davidman, in 1961. And Lewis goes, and you can see him working through. It's a short little book. You could read it easily in an evening. He works through some really tough statements as his faith grieves, but he never stops grieving with God in the picture the whole time. He wrote things like this. He said, I not only live each endless day in grief, but I also live each day thinking about living each day in grief. I'm not only acting it out, he said, but it's all I can think about. And another statement Lewis made, he said, her, speaking of his former wife, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Lewis grieved. Job grieved. 
He did not deny himself a real process of emotional working through very hard things. But somebody's about to tell me that I left something out so far that's mentioned at the end of verse 20 because when it says he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, there's another verb in that sentence. He worshipped. He took this terrible grief and offered it up to his God. He said, Lord, how has this happened? What have I done? I am terrified. I am struck down. But you have done this, O Lord. I have to work that out somehow. Psalm 62, 8 urges God's people to, quote, pour out your heart before the Lord because God is a refuge for us. Elsewhere, David has a strong saying in Psalm 56, 8. I love the figure of speech there. He says, you have put my tears in your bottle. Are not all of them recorded before you? David knew and Job knew how to grieve in the presence of God. And there's all the difference between just shrieking and crying and wailing and worshiping as you grieve. And we see what this means now as we come to the third point in the climax of the text, verse 21. I think, honestly, that this text could be viewed as a pivot point for the whole remainder of the book, you know? Even Job's wife, if you read on, you'll see his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Just curse God. He doesn't really exist. He's not good. Job wouldn't do that. And Job never did do that. No matter what difficulties he argued and worked his way through later on, here was his declaration. He took his stand on it and he stayed with it. Naked came I from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A believer, you see, clings more to the divine giver than to even the best of God's gifts. Yes, we must grieve when we lose a spouse. Some of the Marriages disrupted by death in this church recently have been 50 and 60 year marriages. Think of the wrenching thing that is. Financial investments that maybe form a cornerstone of your whole retirement, gone. A house is given up, gone. A job you badly needed and you depended on, gone. But you see, as important as these things are and as central as they are to our life, Do we really think that these things were our possessions that we would always have? Now, that's a hard question to ask. Job was saying, I entered this life without that blessing, and I'm going to leave without any blessings clinging to me. That was a gift. That wife was a gift. That son, those daughters, that house, all those herds, all that income, it was a gift. I will choose to cling to the giver rather than idolizing the gift, even if that gift be a wife or a child. Let me use an illustration that's maybe too crass, I don't know, but I think it does make the point. 
It surprised me as a book owner of thousands of books and that I am usually willing to freely loan to people who want them. I had to learn a long time ago that books are somehow in a special category of possessions. Uh, you loan somebody a book and they can stay your friend, but they're going to completely forget that you loaned them the book. Books have roots that grow. You know, They go into the other person's house and they grow roots on their shelf. And they think, this is where I am rooted and this is where I will stay. You won't see, I can't tell you how many dozens of books I've never seen again borrowed by good friends. And this isn't a hint, by the way. I'm not, I'm not after anything in particular that I'm awaiting. I'll probably have a bunch of books waiting at the office. But books are sort of unique. And if somebody loans you their book, they're making a, not an outright gift. They're not saying I sign it over to you, but, but here, use it for as long as you need it. And it's implied. I'd like to have it back. Now imagine I loan you, let's say, a Bible study reference book or something, and you did the usual thing, forgot all about it, and it was on your shelf, buried in other books for 10 years. And 10 years from now, I didn't, I hadn't bothered you about it the whole time, but I have it on a card that you've got it, you see. I do keep records. And 10 years from now, oh, I really need that book. I'm going to have to call Joe and say, Joe, you know, could I possibly get my book back? Would you, if you were the person I was calling, be someone who would say, well, what an audacious act of Pastor Rogers. He dared to ask for his book back. Why, I've only had it for 10 years. What makes him think he could have it back? Now, I know I'm making you laugh over something that's almost a ridiculous illustration, but it illustrates a serious point. If God has given you a wife or a husband who was the the wonderful companion and fulfillment of your life for decades. And if that person really was God's gift, does God have a right to say, it's time for the gift to come back to me. I have a good purpose in this. And are we able to say to God, how dare you do that? That spouse belonged to me, God. You're not allowed to do that. Well, yes, that's a hard thing. A spouse is a lot different than a book. I understand. But are we ready to worship the giver? Or will we idolize just his gifts? Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Are you really such a stranger to God and his ways? Is he so little known to you that he cannot collect his own gifts without owing you an explanation for his dealings? God's gift is allowed to brighten our life and bring us joy maybe for a very long time. And we tend over that long time to just assume this will be ours forever. But if Job is right, we're all going to go to the grave as bereft of those gifts as we were the day we were born. And the question is, will we separate between the giver and his gifts? And say, I will worship the giver, no matter what. That's what Job did. His grief wasn't assuaged by any divine explanations here. The mysterious presence and goodness of God wasn't demonstrated to him in any great miraculous ways. But he simply held on and said, God, you're the same giver 
who put all these things in my hand in the first place. In fact, he, he came to an even more dramatic statement of it, if you will, in Job 13, verse 15, when he said these amazing words, although he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I am committed 100% to the goodness of the giver, whose ways I don't always understand. And even when he rips gifts away, or seems to, I will not curse him. I will not demand an explanation. I will trust him. Job never retracted that affirmation all through the remaining 42 chapters. I read something pretty amazing a while ago based on a crime that happened quite a few years ago. I just discovered this testimony. It was something that happened to a Christian couple, and the father wrote, yes, he had time to reflect. I don't know that this was his immediate reaction, but it was his settled response to the murder of his young daughter. This father said, we lost a daughter. Her name was Amy. She was only nine when she rode off on her bicycle one day and did not return. The police found her body in the woods a week later. But our great comfort, now listen to what he said, our great comfort that keeps us from insanity is knowing that her heavenly father found her first and took her back to himself. That could be Job. Trusting the giver, not just becoming lost in the gift. And I ask you to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who persevered in suffering losses that actually make Job's losses look small, minuscule. He gave up the throne of the universe to be spit on, to be tortured, to be killed on a cross in order to defy the evil that Satan designed to do by that cross and bring through it the greatest good that could possibly happen for people who didn't deserve it. And so, folks, our crushing sorrows, whatever they be for, a death, a loss, a job gone by the wayside, our sorrows would seem nonsensical. They wouldn't make sense if it were not for Gethsemane and Calvary, because it's not ultimately Job we look to. It's Jesus, who suffered the greatest loss to win the greatest gain, and we can know that he is touched with the woe of whatever we are suffering about. He tasted it, he felt it, its pain entered him before it entered us. Let me say this. A number of weeks ago, we talked about Adam suddenly discovering he was naked because of sin. When he discovered that, he ran away from God, didn't he? When Job came to the conclusion that he was naked at the beginning of his life and the end of his life in terms of holding on to any gifts from God, what did he do? He didn't run away from God. He worshiped. He held on with all his might to God the sovereign giver of all good and perfect things. And believer, we need to learn whether you're in that suffering right now that some of you are. I can look around and I've noticed your faces as I'm preaching. 
whether you're in it right now or whether unconsciously you're preparing for it because it will come to you someday. When you suffer, be ready to worship and say with Job, the Lord gave. The Lord now has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our Father, I pray for this profound concept to be clear to us. It's not an abstraction. It's not a point of philosophy. It's where our faith meets the road of the hardest things of life. I pray, O oh God, for those among us who are really grieving because some of those 25 and more people for going out further years were their wife or their husband or their mother or father. I pray, too, for all of us who think, well, haven't been suffering for a while. Don't think this message is for me. Help us to be armed, to know you and to worship you as the great giver so that all your wonderful gifts would be kept in a right perspective. Thank you, all sovereign God, not for explaining yourself, but for remaining true to who you are. For Jesus' sake, amen.